From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. Colin Donovan, a little bit under the weather today, but fear not. Filling in for our Vice President of Theology, the one, the only, Dynamic Deacon, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. How in the world are you? I am doing fantastic, Jack. Uh, it's great to be back on again. Looks like a home game there in Portland for you today. That's right. Uh, you know, July 4th weekend's coming up. And uh, I leave, actually, on July 4th for the longest overseas speaking tour that I've ever had. I've I've been blessed to be able to go to 29 countries, and on July 4th I leave to speak in New Zealand uh, for the first time, and then from there to Papua New Guinea, uh, and then from there to Australia. So I'll be gone for over a little over three weeks. You know, I don't think you're going to find a McDonald's in Papua New Guinea, brother. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you know, uh, Father uh, Angelus Shaughnessy, who was um, kind of helping out with the friars in their early stages of development here at EWTN, spent many years in Papua New Guinea, uh, native of Pittsburgh, but he spent many years in Papua New Guinea, and I used to love to see how he was going to weave a Papua New Guinea story into today's gospel whenever he was uh, the main celebrant at the Mass because you knew it was coming. But uh, we will keep you in our prayers as you go about. uh, Hopefully you'll have a fruitful uh, time there. You know, Deacon, um, speaking of of Portland, uh, you know, there's – there's been a lot of not necessarily recently, but in the, in the in the last couple years, you know, Portland's got a lot of bad press, and and for good reason, quite frankly, um, in in many instances. Um, but I think that that really Portland is just a bit of a microcosm of what's going on in in America, because you know we've seen a decline in. Uh, the value placed on uh, living a moral life and uh, and things like that. And I think that, that maybe we should be preparing ourselves. First of all, we should be evangelizing and we should be on the front lines taking care of things. But I think we should prepare ourselves for a potentially an outpouring of the Spirit because our Lord tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And uh, do, do you see signs of that in the midst of of all the negative things that we hear from Portland these days? 
Yes, uh, Jack, uh, that that's very much true. And you're right. You know, it's it's a very different place than when I moved here uh, back in in the uh, late 1990s. Um, it's uh, so 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 I think what's happening is that you know God is uh, showing us that He's still here. You know, uh, we live in a culture that's kind of turned it on itself that worships the Trinity of me, myself, and I. And sometimes God puts reminders. Okay, well, if just to get in the Old Testament, well, if you don't me, want me to rule over you, here's what's going to happen. You want to put yourself as God? Here you go. You know, and I think now people have now that we've turned the corner from the whole pandemic thing, and the further we get away from that, I think the more comfortable people are becoming. But we see still some of the aftermath, like importantly here, the homelessness. There's still a lot of divisiveness along racial lines. Um, you know, you have a really a, a city government that really is uh, apathetic uh, on, on approaching these issues. And so uh, you see the churches, people start to come back to church, see the faith coming alive. Um, e- even now here, Catholics standing up a little more strongly to what's happening in the culture than they have in the past. And I think that's a wonderful sign of the Holy Spirit starting to stir up those embers of faith in the hearts of, of God's people. And I think that's really what's going to change things, because I don't know, quite frankly, I, I mean, I am certainly not a social scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I don't think that there are any particular initiatives that are going to change the way government is going, because it's the same people that have been steering the boat that got us into the mess in the first place or certainly contributed to it, and I, I think we can make a pretty good case that some of it was an intentional plan in, in some instances for sure. But what you're talking about, people coming back to Mass, you know, people getting tired of what they're seeing, and finally getting pushed to a point where they will get off their spiritual rear ends and they'll get back in church and they'll start to embrace the things that bring them true peace and true happiness, that then will affect elections down the road. And this isn't going to be an easy fix, but but we need to embrace those people that are coming back to the church. You know, we need to not have that my pew mentality, my Jesus mentality. You know, we don't need you outsiders in here. We were here the whole time. We don't need we don't need any of that. We've got to look at our brothers and sisters that are returning, and we have to look at our brothers and sisters that obstinately refuse to return as the creatures created in the image of likeness of God that they are, and that's why I think we're ineffective oftentimes in our evangelistic efforts because we don't have that perspective right in front of our eyes. Yeah, that's right, because what is evangelization? It's really uh, not just the good news. It's about sharing the life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. That is what, what true evangelization is all about. Because when you're in love with someone, and we all say, Jack, and uh, that, that Jesus is the most important person. He's the center of my life. He's the heart of my existence. But yet we're reluctant to share that with other people. Right. So so when you're you're a dating relationship or, you know, you think this might be the one, you know, you share that with everybody, family, friends, whoever will listen. Right. Because this is the one. Well, Jesus is the one. He's the way, the truth and the life. And we can't be reluctant about sharing our joy of being in an intimate personal, loving, and life-giving relationship with the living God. So it's not about polemics or triumphalism, even the infighting with the church, Latin mass versus um, uh, the, the Novus Ordo mass, or extraordinary form, ordinary form, or whether you like Pope Francis or not. I mean, th- these are distractions that take us away from where Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is trying to lead us. 
So we have to, I, I totally agree with you, Jack. We have to come together as a body of Christ and listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches, as, as uh, Christ told us in the book of Revelation to John. You know, so uh, this is a time for listening. This is a time for opening our hearts. This is a time for receiving those who have fallen away, welcoming them back with joy, with open arms, just like the prodigal son. He welcomed his son back, but the, the, the older brother was reluctant. He was angry. But the father said, no, your brother was lost. That He's found. He was dead. Now he's come back to life. So we need to welcome our brothers and sisters back with joy and open arms. I would also encourage everybody to get acquainted with Blessed Carlo Acutis. Uh, I think that our bishops have done a wonderful thing in proclaiming uh, this uh, re Eucharistic revival uh, in our country because you look back, you know, over the decades at the miracles, uh, the ones that I'm most familiar with in America really kind of revolve around the closing of abortion facilities and things like that. But, you know, if we could get one tiny little bit of our spiritual arms around the notion of the real presence, boy, we could just set the world on fire. Oh, man, Jack, you nailed it. I mean, I've been saying even during the pandemic um, that we need, a, we need a Eucharistic revival. We need to fall more deeply in love with Jesus, get back to the basics. And what's more basic than our Lord giving himself to us in that most awesome, blessed sacrament of the Eucharist? And so uh, once we have a Eucharistic heart, a Eucharistic-centered church, then we'll have a church that's going to be alive and vibrant and dynamic again, but it's going to have to be a church that's going to be standing strong against this culture. Look at the readings coming up this weekend for the, for this Sunday. Woo! Those strong messages, strong words by Jesus. You know, um, you love if you don't love brother or sister, mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love me, you'll pick up your cross and follow me. You know, imagine how that sounded to the people listening to him. Wait a minute. This preacher from nowhere town of Nazareth uh, is, is saying that in order to meet the fourth commandment, which is the which is a, a of the ascetic Haribro, the um, the ten words of God. The fourth commandment is a hinge commandment between love God and love your neighbor as yourself, because it's the only commandment that comes with a promise. Right. So he's saying, wait a minute. Uh, he's not saying put the commandments away, but he's saying you have to love him more than you even love your own family. And that's the love that God demands from us. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, through redemptive Catholic journalism, EWTN News helps advance the gospel and the teachings of the church, and you can get trusted news right in your email inbox. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Colin Donovan, our Vice President of Theology, a little bit under the weather today. He's actually feeling better, but his voice is not returned completely, so we will hopefully have Colin back with us next Friday. But Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, 
biding his time until he heads to the land down under, is joining us today so graciously. And uh, Deacon Harold uh, Forrester is watching us on YouTube, and he says, Deacon Harold, what advice would you offer a new parent for raising faithful children in our secular society? Oh, man, Forrester, that is a great question. And you know what? I hear a lot of newly married couples or those that are engaged asking that same question. I mean, it's scary uh, in this environment raising kids right now amidst the whole transgender uh, agenda, uh, amidst the, the so-called redefinitions of marriage and, and, and everything else that's going on, you know, especially when in, in the public school systems, they're uh, indoctrinating children into these ideologies from kindergarten, you know, so it's a very scary proposition. So I would say uh, the, the first thing is to uh, stay focused on the teachings of Christ and the church by your lived example as parents. I mean, we can t teach our children about the faith, but the thing is we have to live it ourselves. They have to see us. Why? The, the home, St. John Paul II called the domestic church, right? The church of the home, because that's where children learn to fall in love with Jesus. So they have to not just hear and learn about, but experience the love of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And they do that with dedicated, committed parents who are living the faith themselves and then passing that beautiful inheritance on to their children. We, we always worry about, you know, leaving an inheritance for our children. What I want to leave is an inheritance that's going to get my children to heaven. Not anything that this world has to offer, but but giving them, the the helping them by uh, my lived example, my wife lived example, on on the uh, the roadmap to get to heaven, the GPS, right, to get to heaven. So uh, so praying with them, uh, going to mass, and understanding why they're at mass, the power of Christ in the Eucharist, and what that does for their life, and the more they conform themselves to Christ, the stronger they'll be uh, in the faith. So I think that's a basic starting point. If that helps. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Several open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Anne in the great state of Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Anne, you are on with Deacon Harold. Hi, gentlemen. Thank you so much for doing this program. I have a question um, specifically related to the city of Portland. Um, I have a young friend who's just out of college who is supposed to start a job in Portland in October, and he's a little worried um, looking at the reputation of the city, and uh, I was wondering if uh, Deacon Harold would have any recommendations as to where he should turn to find some connections with other young people, um, being just out of college, uh, where he could possibly find a parish home. Um, do you have any input on that? Yes, I do. And let me ask you a question. Do you know where in Portland he's going to be living? No, I don't. I'm sorry. This is all okay. the information I have. Okay, no problem. So so here's here's what I would recommend. Um, no matter where he lives, there's a wonderful community, um, uh, downtown Portland, uh, the uh, Portland State University Newman Center is run by an amazing group of priests. They also run the Newman Center at Oregon State University, which is a, a couple hours south of Portland. Um, so, so I would go to the, the Newman Center, 
uh, at the at the Portland State University. Uh, there's also a wonderful parish uh, downtown, St. Patrick's, uh, and that is a, a vibrant parish where most of the, the people that attend are young adults. I mean, you almost don't see that in the church. A lot of older people and maybe some young families, but but St. Patrick's in downtown Portland and Northwest Portland uh, would be a parish that I think that he would find a lot of young people. There's a, they have a very vibrant, dynamic youth program, uh, a young adult program there, not youth program, young adult program there, which I think he'll find very, very refreshing. There's also YCP, Young Catholic Professionals, which is a very solid group of folks um, that caters to young Catholic professionals, business people, uh, about surviving in the secular culture while maintaining their faith in the business and work environment. So connecting with YCP, Young Catholic Professionals uh, in Portland. And then finally, I would also say Holy Rosary Catholic Church, which is the Dominican Priory, where Father Brian Mullady lives, as a matter of fact, um, to, to, to attend Mass there. They also have confessions every single day. They have the extraordinary form uh, of the Mass. They have Vespers on Sunday evening. Just a wonderful, vibrant place to, to worship as well. And they can come and see me. Have them stop in and say hi to me at Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, uh, on North Williams uh, Avenue. They didn't name the street after Jack, by the way. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's North Williams Avenue, Immaculate Heart of Mary. Have them stop by and see me. I'd love to meet them. And can you, uh, can you help maybe ease some of the apprehension he has based on the news these days? Yeah, you know, a lot of that um, is is dissipated. A lot of the violence and stuff. Actually, that, that that's not even happening anymore. The the only thing is the the homeless people um, is an issue, but that's an issue in a lot of cities right now, right? But don't worry about the violence and things like that. He'll he'll be good. But connecting, I think, with one of these communities there will 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 help him very much. Is that helpful, Ann? That's fantastic. Thank you so much for the information. I wrote it all down. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for the phone call. Very we good. Appreciate it. And you've done a nice thing, Ann, because we will have uh, all of our listeners will be praying for him as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. David's watching us on Facebook Live, and he says, How should I respond to Protestant friends who challenge the sacrament of confession? Ah, okay. Yeah, uh, we get that a lot, right, <laughs> as, as Catholics. Why do you have to go to a man to, to have your sins forgiven? You know, all you got to do is go to Jesus, right? And so the story I, I always tell is with my encounter with a Protestant pastor. Um, uh, I was doing some work. Uh, everybody knows I have, I have nine television series at EW10. I love, love, love the network. I'm honored to be part of the, of the EW10 family. Um, but about 10, 12 years ago, I also did some work for TBN the Trinity Broadcast Network, because they actually heard me on EWTN, believe it or not, and they asked me to do some work with them, with, with some young adults. So I said, sure. You know, I got permission from my bishop and went there. And there were some pastors who welcomed me there and some who didn't. And one of them came up and challenged me, uh, you know, uh, on the Bible. He goes, you have to go to some man in some dark box. All you got to do is go to Jesus. And uh, he just washes the blood of, blood of the lamb, wash away your sins, Jesus. And so I said, how do you know for sure your sins are forgiven? He said, what? I said, did I stutter? 
I said, how do you know when you pray to Jesus each and every time your sins are forgiven? Because it sounds like what you're saying to me is all you have to do is just, you know, I can commit any, any sin I want. I can rape, pillage, plunder, steal, pornography, whatever it is. And all I have to do each and every time is just pray to Jesus. And every single time the sin is forgiven, uh, what, what incentive do I have then to do anything that's good? What incentive do I have to do anything that Jesus says? Jesus says, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, love God and love your neighbor yourself, love your enemies. What if I don't do any of that? I can go to heaven? And he said, well, you just have to pray to Jesus and wash the lamb because of your sins and the Holy Spirit fills your heart. I said, Holy Spirit fills your heart? You're basing the forgiveness of sins on how you feel? I said, you know, this that could be acid reflux. I said, look, if me and you were in a, in a, in a, a fight, and we're no longer speaking to each other, what would have to happen to know that our relationship has been healed? I have to, we have to have an encounter. I have to see you, talk to you, email you, Skype, something to know that the relationship has been healed. Well, the same thing, God, God did the same thing. He tried to heal the relationship that was broken by original sin through the, the covenants of the Old Testament. None of that worked. So then he had to send his son to establish a new and eternal covenant. He had to be with us. He wanted a personal, intimate relationship with us. Right. Uh, he wanted to, to have life giving communion with us. So he sent his son. And when we have that encounter with him, then we know for sure the sin is forgiven. And that encounter happens in, in the sacrament of reconciliation. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter five, when they wanted their sins forgiven, they went to the priest. And Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so we go to the priest, John chapter 20. He says to the apostles directly, who sins you forgive are forgiven them, who sins you retain are retained. He gave them the power, authority in the Holy Spirit to forgive sins in his name. It is Jesus who's forgiven his sin, but he does it through the through the through the priest, right? Who is his his uh his his living witness, his his rep his uh uh uh, representative on earth. Well, the, the Holy Father is the representative of, of, of Jesus Christ. But the power and authority to forgive sins was given to the priest by Jesus Christ himself. That authority has been passed down to us. So when we go in that confession, we hear the words of absolution, we know for sure that the sin is forgiven. I hope that helps, yeah. David. Anybody who, uh, anybody who has approached the sacrament with a sincerity of heart and has heard the words, I absolve you of your sins, I don't think that anybody would need any convincing beyond that moment. Right, remember, it's, it's, he says, I absolve you because he's speaking in persona Christi, in the person of Christ himself who gave him the authority to say that. He didn't say, Jesus forgives you. He says, I absolve you. That's beautiful and that's powerful. And that's our Catholic faith. Got an email here from uh, Justin, and he says, can you comment on the claim that the documents from the Second Vatican Council were originally clear-cut and orthodox and then later altered to be more confusing, and were there actually alterations made? Okay, yeah, I can address that. Justin, the answer is no. Uh, the documents of, of Vatican II, I mean, they're, they're freely available. I have, like, several versions sitting right in front of me here in my office um, of the documents of Vatican II. So the documents are beautiful. They're, they're solid. They're orthodox, and all of them were approved by the Pope. See, see, where the issue came in with some of these documents, uh, Justin, is how they were um, how they were interpreted. So, for, for example, the, the most famous one is Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Second Vatican document on the mat, on the liturgy. Okay, so the Second Vatican Council document gets uh, gets blamed for all the problems that's happening at Mass and people leaving the church and mat with clown masses and all that stuff. Sacrosanctum Concilium never said 
take Latin out of the mass. It never said take uh, Gregorian chant out of mass. In fact, it said it's supposed to have pride of place in the liturgy. It never said turn the priest around. It never said take down altar rails or statues or any or, or change vestments or anything like that. But the Second Vatican Council gets blamed for it. So the problem is not the documents themselves. It's how they were in how some of the documents were interpreted. And, and how, um, uh, in case of the mass, how the um, mass was brought forward, how it was, um, uh, uh, how it was carried Implemented. out yeah. was the problem. Implemented. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Deacon Harold. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN radio family, WQOU 104.1 FM in Mount Gilead, Ohio, is celebrating their eighth year as an EWTN affiliate and Cornerstone Charitable Foundation in Beloit, Kansas, marks four years with us. Uh, Congratulations to our friends at WQOU. OU and KKSJ from all of us here at EWTN. Plenty of time for your phone calls. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Ann, a first-time caller in Council Bluffs, Iowa, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Ann, you are on with Deacon Harold. Hi, Deacon Harold. Can you hear me okay? I can, Ann. Thank you. So thank you so much for taking my call, and it's, it's quite an honor to speak with you. I I, um, I have a dilemma, kind of, I, I believe, and uh, so I serve on a board of directors for a nonprofit organization in the, in the state that I live in, and recently they came out and signed a letter that was opposed to a bill that just got passed in the legislature to ensure that that gender-affirming care was not being provided for minors under the age of 15. So that would include, you know, um, you know, puberty, blocking drugs, stuff like that. And so this nonprofit does a ton of good work in our community. They work with homelessness. They do um, mental health services. And the, or, the organization's leadership signed on to this letter that was was actually brought forward by the Chamber of Commerce saying that the, the, the bill, if it was passed, was bad business and it would make it so that folks wouldn't want to move to our city and that they'd actually want to move away because it doesn't create that culture of inclusivity and it, and, you know, it sends a bad message. So the, the leadership signed on to this letter without us as board members knowing about it. And so then we brought it to them during the, the most recent board meeting mostly because it was a matter of policy, in my opinion. They should have brought that kind of a controversial thing to us. But now, as a board, and quite honestly, I was one of the, maybe uh, maybe a third of the board members were kind of like, what the heck? And the rest of them were like, oh, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. You know, it's fine that we signed on to that. And I, I feel like not only they should have let us know that they were doing that, but now I have, a, I, I really would love to know what my responsibility is as a Catholic, because 
I'm as a board member, I have a responsibility to that organization for their reputation and to, for their strategy. And if their strategy is to support gender affirming care, they rationalize it by saying they're providing um, mental health services to help them, you know, mitigate suicide and stuff like that in that age bracket in young people that are going through gender dysphoria. Well, if that's the case, then help them understand how to accept their body the way it is rather than, you know, rather than, um, you know, deciding on whether or not they want to transition to a step to another sex. And so I really feel like I'm torn. I, I feel like I know what I need to do. And I just, I really feel like I would love to have your opinion on this. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, a, a couple of things. I'll make a comment first and then and then give you some advice. Uh, first of all, uh, I was just in Europe a little over a month ago. And even in Europe, as, as wacky as some of those places are, they've been pulling back on the whole uh, transgender uh, reaffirming surgeries and puberty blockers for minors. They're even seeing like, wait a minute, this is this is dangerous. This is irreversible. You know, we're talking about young people can't even drink, not old enough to drink alcohol yet. You know, they're not old enough to make all these decisions, but yet we're allowed to make decisions that are life altering, permanent and cannot change. You know, so even they're pulling back on this. Um, and, and so you have a couple of choices here. Um, so the, the Catechism teaches in paragraph 8. 1868 on the participation in evil and uh, morally uh, evil acts. And, and so there's formal cooperation and material cooperation. So formal is you're actually bringing about the action itself. Okay. So, so in your case with this transgender thing, you would actually be doing the transgender surgery or providing the, or, or you know, doing the surgery yourself, which, which is obvious you're not doing that, but then there's material cooperation. Right. Or you're which means you're providing the materials that is going to that are going to bring about the action. All right. And so under material uh, uh, cooperation, there's proximate and remote. So and it has to do with intent. So proximate material cooperation means that you're providing them. Uh, you're, you're intending with your action, you're intending to provide the materials that are going to bring about this action. So, for example, um, you have Target, for example, which is all over this, you know, uh, uh, redefinition of marriage, uh, queer, uh, their own words, queer affirming and transgender ideology. So if you say, well, I'm going to go to uh, shop at Target because I know the money that I spend is going to support this ideology, that would be um, proximate material cooperation and active evil. But then there's remote material cooperation. So in other words, that would be like you're but you're not intending to bring about an action by the action that you yourself are taking. All right. So, for example, um, with cosmetics, right, they they, they test cost certain cosmetics on um, uh, human embryos that have been from the cells from human embryos that have been aborted stem cell lines that go all the way back into the 1970s. So if you buy perfume or lotion or fingernail polish, something like that. You know, how do they test it to make sure they're not going to cause uh, irritation or, or some cause of, of, of reaction on human skin? Well, they test it on these on these human embryos. So but when you go to buy that, you're not saying by buying this, I'm supporting that. Um, you know, we can't support that at all as Catholics, but you're not intending to bring about the action. So what you have to decide is what is your level of participation? Um, I could t I, for me personally, I would quit. That's just me. I'm not telling you what to do. 
But for me, I cannot be part of an organization, especially on the board, that's supposed to drive the direction, the philosophical, ideological, and financial direction of that company, knowing that they are participating, especially without without uh, telling the board. Now, that's something to me that 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 draw. That's a line that I can't cross. But I again, I can't tell you what to do. But those are the Catholic principles that will allow you to make a decision. Does that make sense, Anne? It, it most certainly does, and it and it kind of confirms my feeling, my gut feeling on this. I have other friends on this board and stuff that, that I, I've heard other folks that are the, of the same mind as me that have resigned. And um, from like, and, and now funders are pulling funding from them. And so for me, I'm kind of late in the game because I didn't know about it. I, they didn't let us know. And it was a, it was a funder that brought it to me. So um, I, I feel like now I have a responsibility to for, for my moral, you know, for where I stand morally and relative to the Catholic Church and the teachings that I believe in, that I do need to step down. And, you know, there's a, I, this is the thing that, you know, someone brought to me is like, well, when it gets tough, isn't that where the board is supposed to be there and provide insights and stuff like that? Yes, I believe that's the case. That's our responsibility. And I, I believe that I've done that. I, I came forward and I said, you know, we have, a, you know, regardless of what this issue is, it at least should have been brought to the board so that we could vet it. That would have been our opportunity to, to be able to come forward and say, no, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't put our name on this. We should really be careful what we're advocating for. But that opportunity was never put in front of us, right? And so I feel like yeah, now, yeah. I mean, that's another thing is I feel like I've put, I've at least provided my insights in and, and done my duty as a board member. You know, and I no, heard a- absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, go ahead, Jack. I, I heard so, Anne. I just wanted to give you a little, a little bit of in, of encouragement and something to to look into that you can maybe take with you. And that is, I, I heard recently an interview, and I can't, I, I hesitate to even bring it up because I can't remember the particulars. But, but the the gist of it is, is that during one portion of this interview. It was brought to light, and if you'll do a, an internet search, I think you can find statistics that will back up what I'm about to tell you, is that the suicide rate amongst, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, gender dysphoric youth who act in some way on that and takes either puberty blockers or has surgery or does anything like that, the suicide rate in that group is significantly higher than the gender dysphoria experiencing youth that don't take action. So the, the That's argument... That's right, because... Uh, go ahead, Deacon. Yeah, I, I heard that from, uh, from Dr. Robert Millare, who works at the John Paul Two Foundation for Marriage and Family in Houston. I heard him say that exact same thing, Jack. And the reason why is because uh, th- th- there's an issue that they have to deal with that they're not dealing with psychologically. And so they think, okay, if I get this surgery and change my body, that'll fix everything. And when they have the surgery, which is irreversible, and they realize that they still have the issue that has psychologically that has never been dealt with, and they have it, they don't feel any different. That's why the suicide rate is, is so high. Yeah, and I just heard Ann, you'd and mentioned... that's why we have to respond with yeah. love and mercy. Yes. You know, we have to respond with the beauty. Of, we, we love our brothers and sisters that are transgender. We love them with the love of Christ, and we have to love them enough not to lie to them so that they don't end up taking their own life. 
Yeah, very good, very good. Thank you, Ann. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Marsha is in Colorado Springs, Colorado, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Marsha, you're on with Deacon Harold. Hi, thank you. Um, I, I keep hearing about all of this uh, Eucharistic revival, but my question is, what are they planning to do to implement it? I mean, besides just writing books and, and talking about it and trying to teach it, what are they going to do to actually put it into practice? Uh, that's a great question, Marcia. Um, so if you go to the USCCB website, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, they have a, a program that outlines for three years. In fact, we're just starting year two. Um, right now of a three-year program uh, on, on really bringing about a revival and a love for Jesus Christ present body, blood, soul, divinity in the Eucharist. And so they had the first year already, and I participated in some of these events. I've spoken at Eucharistic conferences within dioceses, uh, where the whole emphasis of the conference has been on Christ's real presence in the Eucharist. We're seeing an uptick in Eucharistic adoration at parishes. Uh, I know of a diocese where the, bis where the bishop has asked the priest to preach more homilies on Jesus Christ and his presence in the Eucharist. Uh, and you're right, there are study groups that are happening at parishes that are studying church documents and uh, teachings of the fathers of the church about Christ's presence in the Eucharist. And uh, I know in Indianapolis at the... Um, uh, uh, at the arena next, yeah, next in summer. Indianapolis Convention Center. Yeah, there's next next summer there's a huge um, uh, uh, Eucharistic convocation, you know, where, where people are going to come together and celebrate Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. We saw, for example, this past Corpus Christi, Eucharistic processions. Even here in Portland, we had a beautiful, our Archbishop Sample did a magnificently beautiful Eucharistic procession through downtown Portland into the park blocks. It was awesome. So the, we're seeing a lot of uh, revival in the Eucharist. So go to the USCCB, USCCB website and also find out at your own diocese what they're doing to help bring a deeper love of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. God bless you, Marcia. Thanks so much for the phone call. And I know we're going to have a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham to culminate the family celebration, which you will be at, Deacon, as one of the uh, presenters on August 26th right here in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm sure that you will be part of that Eucharistic procession as well, huh? Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. In fact, I was just in Birmingham at the uh, uh, Catholic Marketing Network trade show and did a several spots at the cathedral for the uh, family celebration, so I'm very excited about it. 833-288-EWTN. We can still squeeze in your phone calls at 833 288 um, I've got a question that you're going to love here, Deacon Harold. Serena, she writes an email saying, Someone told me that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was an event where people simply shared and were generous with each other. Oh. <laughs> Is this true? I can't believe that's still going around. Um, yeah, so so what's happening, Serena, is that uh, in the 70s, again, misinterpreting the documents of Vatican II, uh, th there's a, a school of thought that says, yes, so what happened was um, uh, Jesus was about to address the people. They were hungry, and, and so uh, they were all stingy. They had the food hidden underneath their clothes, underneath their garments and in bags. 
And when they saw the generosity of the young boy who came forward with his few fish and a couple uh, uh, piece, pieces of bread, you know, they, you know, so they all their hearts got softened and they opened up their jackets and their bags. And they shared the food among them. So the miracle was the sharing. Um, no. OK, it was it was a bona fide miracle. And when you hear things like that, your your Catholic radar, what's called the census for Dame, the, your Catholic radar should be boop, 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 pinging all over the place because, you know, that is just garbage, quite frankly. Um, uh, the, the truth is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, I'm going to just talk about the, the miracle in John six. What happened there was Jesus fed the people miraculously uh, with fish and bread, preparing them to feed them spiritually talking about his real presence in the Eucharist in John chapter 6, that, that, that beautiful um, uh, uh, discourse that he gives about the, the real presence in the Eucharist is, is just absolutely amazing. So he fed them bodily, preparing them to feed them spiritually. So it was an actual miracle. In fact, there's two, we have two accounts uh, uh, of, of that miracle happening where Jesus fed 5,000, then he fed uh, 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 another several thousand people as well. So... Uh, <laughs> Jesus, again, preparing to, to feed his church uh, uh, spiritually, not only uh, on the mountain, but also in, in the uh, Last Supper and, and in the Eucharist. He still feeds us with his life today. Be sure to join us for Mass Appeal Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Colleen Kelly Mass offers free, friendly advice from a Catholic perspective. That's Mass Appeal Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Evan is in Bellevue, Nebraska. You're number one in Nebraska today, Deacon, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Evan, you're on with Deacon Harold. Hey, Deacon Harold. How's it going? All right, my friend. My question was, uh, when I'm going to confession and the priest kind of likes to keep it short and sweet, um, are the sins that I don't get to get out, like don't get to say, are they still forgiven? Or do I have to kind of tell them that I need to get this off my chest? Or uh, what do I yeah, do? Yes. Yeah, so remember, the sins that you confess, we can confess all your sins, but the sins that need to be forgiven in the sacrament are mortal sins or, or deadly sins. Uh, thanatos in, in Greek, um, uh, you know, that's where Marvel got the name Thanos from, right? For, for, from the, uh, uh, the guy that, that killed everybody in the world. Um, so yeah, so what you have to do is you confess all the sins that, that's on your heart that you remember in the confessional. Um, if you forget some, you know, like not intentionally, if, if you intentionally hold back sins, that's a problem. But if you forget, like you walk out like, oh, I forgot that one. I meant to confess it, but I forgot. That sin is also forgiven, okay, because you intended to, for, to have that sin forgiven. But if you still feel on your conscience heavy about it, just go back and confess that, that sin again. You don't have to. But it sounds like in your case, the priest is trying to rush you so you're not able to get all of your sins out. I would just say before you give absolute fire, I, I really need to, to to say this other one and just, you know, just don't stop talking, right? <laughs> just keep saying the sins until you get them all out. If if that's the way Father uh, does his confessions, does that helpful for you at all? Yeah, Evan. Yep. Thank you. All right, you're very welcome. Yeah, Next you're up, most welcome. Yep. Next up is Hope in the great state of Georgia, listening on the Amazon Echo. Hope, you're on with Deacon Harold. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call and. 
Um, my question is, I'm a catechist. I've been a catechist for a long time. However, lately I heard that uh, Catholics have not been catechized properly. Um, besides following the program that they gave us, what else uh, do you suggest uh, for us as catechists to do better so we can do our we can do a better yeah. vocation, better job with the kids? Yeah, Hope, you, you hit on something that's very important. The, the problem we've been experiencing, Hope, is that we're teaching the Catholic faith like a subject in school, right? You're talking about you're teaching kids as a catechist. Think about it. Kids go to school. They learn math, English, science, language arts, uh, and the if, other if subjects that they learn. If yeah, <laughs> if you're lucky. Not even teaching cursive now anymore. Um, they're going from printing to, to computer. Uh, but But the thing is, we can't teach the Catholic faith like that or else— in our children's minds, it's just going to be math, English, science, language, arts, religion. And then it just becomes a thing. They tick off a list. I got my, you know, I, I got my driver's license. I got my, I went to the prom. I, I got confirmed. It's just something they tick off a list. It doesn't sink into the depths of their heart. They don't live from that faith. They just learn about it. So what we have to do as a catechist, Hope, is to make the connection between the mind and the heart. So it just doesn't become information that they're learning about the faith that becomes part of their everyday lived experience. And the way we do that, well, primarily that's supposed to be happening in the home, right? But let's be real. A lot of parents have outsourced their responsibilities of teaching the faith to folks like you hope to catechists. Well, I'll just drive them to soccer, make sure they get something to eat and put clothes on them. But you know, the catechists and the, the youth group and confirmation, they'll teach my children about Jesus. And when those children come home, they don't see the faith being lived out. Right. And so so they're like, wait a minute, I'm learning about this stuff, but my parents don't really care. So why should I care? Right. So so what you have to do is help to make that connection. I think the best way to do that is by, first of all, not shying away from serious issues. Uh, young people want to know truth. They want to know. They don't want watered down. They don't want. In fact, I just I just was talking to a a, 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 a guy. I'm, I'm godfather for one of his children, but the one of his other children has some serious questions about the faith that are not being answered. So he goes, can he, can, can they talk to you? <laughs> right? Because they want to hear truth. They want to hear beauty. They want to hear that. Why should I go against my friends who say that transgender is okay? Why should I go to mass every Sunday when my parents don't go? What is Jesus Christ doing for me in the Eucharist? They want answers. Right. And, and so they have to see the faith being lived out. They have to see you because I, I tell you, kids can spot a fake a mile away. Someone who's just paying lip service to what they believe and don't really believe it or live it, kids can tell that right away. So we have to be authentic in how we live our faith and not just teach them the faith. And we have to put people in their lives, role models, that witness to the power of God's love so they can see, ah, this is not just stuff I'm learning from a book. It's actually real in my life and meaningful in my life every day. You know, so that's the connection that has to be made, Hope. God bless you, Hope. We appreciate the phone call. John writes in, in the, in, the, in the Divine Mercy Chaplet, what does it mean when we state, for the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world? Yeah, so when Christ died on the cross, he died for everyone, right? He died for all of us in that beautiful act of loving and life-giving surrender on the cross. And he had to die. Why? Because uh, death was never meant to be part of the picture. But in the Garden of Eden, 
our parents chose, our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose themselves over God. They made a decision to say no to God's invitation to love, life, intimacy, communion, and that brought death into the world. So out of, and God doesn't want us to die. He doesn't want us to die. And in Ezekiel, he's very clear. He goes, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord in Ezekiel 18. And, and so the Lord wants to see everyone live. And so he sent his son to die to show that not even death, the worst effect of sin, is more powerful than God's love and mercy, his merciful love. In fact, in the Bible, uh, I noticed that a lot of English translations in the Old Testament, it says uh, God's love, like for Psalm 136, for his great love is without end. But in the Hebrew, it's actually hesed. So it's for his merciful love is without end. So mercy and love go together. So in that act on the cross, he died to, to for, for every single one of us out of love and mercy so that we, even though we experience physical death, we will not die forever. We will live with him forever in, in heaven because that is the ultimate goal of where, our, of where our life is heading. I hope that makes sense for you, John. God bless you, John. We appreciate the email today, and we will keep you in our prayers for sure. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. David wants to know, how can God be loving if he knows the destination of a person is hell, yet he still creates them? Oh, yeah, that's a very Calvinist position, right? So Calvinists believe that God created people for the specific purpose of going to hell. No, no. Uh, that's not look, look see just because god knows uh, it's called predestination so god knows from even before you were created what how your life is going to turn out but god knowing that doesn't change our ability to make our own free will decisions you see so for example i, I even though god knows what's going to happen i don't know what's going to happen it's like a book so god wrote the book he knows the beginning, he knows the middle, he knows the end, right? But for us, David, uh, we know that we know what came before. We're living on this page right now, but we don't know what's coming. And we can make choices and decisions in our life that will affect our eternal salvation and outcome. But God doesn't force that on us. We, we can freely choose that. And our free will decision doesn't change the predestination of God. We can still live freely. I can make choices and decisions all the time. You know, when I'm tempted, I can make a choice and decision. I can fight this by praying in our Father, Hail Mary, asking Jesus and the Blessed Mother to be with me in this moment of temptation, or I could choose to give in to the temptation, you know, um, and, and cut myself off from God's life. That's my decision, but that doesn't affect God's predestination. On behalf of our host, Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of Open Line. Back at it again on Monday. Until then, God bless.